It was lovely summer weather in the country. And the golden corn, the green oats, and the haystacks piled up in the meadows and looked beautiful. So begins the well-known tale of the ugly duckling by 19th century Danish author and poet Hans Christian Andersen. The tale begins with a mother duck sitting on her nest, waiting for her babies to hatch. And all hatch except for one, the largest of all the eggs, but she vows to give it more time and eventually it does crack open and out comes a duckling that Anderson says was very large and very ugly. In fact, the mother wonders if it could perhaps be a turkey that mistakenly ended up in her nest. But it becomes obvious that it's not, in fact, a turkey as soon as they make their way to the water. And the mother sees how this large, ugly duckling is such a natural swimmer. They then head to the farmyard when another duck flies over and attacks the ugly duckling simply because it was ugly. And this treatment continued. Even one of his siblings said, Ah, you ugly creature, I wish the cat would get you. And as the duckling grew, it didn't end. The ducks pecked him, the chickens beat him, and even the young girl who fed the poultry kicked him with her feet. And so the ugly duckling ran away, eventually finding himself alone on a pond on a cold winter's night, trying desperately to keep warm and to keep the ice around him from freezing. Exhausted and out of energy, he gives up and the ice freezes all around him. But early the next morning, a peasant happened to be walking by and noticed him and went out and broke the ice and carried the duckling back to his wife, who revived him. But when the children woke up, they they saw this duckling and they wanted to play with him, which scared the duckling and caused quite a ruckus in the house. And he found himself escaping out the front door, making his way to a slough where he would lay low for a while. The warm sun gave him strength, and eventually he began to notice his wings. He could feel how strong his wings had become, and he started to flap them, and before he knew it, he found himself rising into the air. He can't really believe what's going on, what's happening, but he flies to a garden, and he lands in this garden, and and while he's there, he catches his first glimpse in the distance of three beautiful white swans swimming on the smooth water. He has no place to go. He's lost. He has nowhere to turn. He has no family. He doesn't belong anywhere. Listen to how Anderson so beautifully describes what happens next in the story. He says, I will fly to those royal birds and they will kill me because I am so ugly. But it doesn't matter. It's better to be killed by them than pecked by the ducks, beaten by the hens, pushed about by the maiden who feeds the poultry, or starved with hunger in the winter. Then he flew to the water and swam towards the beautiful swans. The moment they espied the stranger, they rushed to meet him with outstretched wings. Kill me, said the poor bird. And he bent his head down to the surface of the water and awaited death. But what did he see 
in the clear stream below. His own image. No longer a dark gray bird, ugly and disagreeable to look at, but a graceful and beautiful swan. And listen to these words. He now felt glad at having suffered sorrow and trouble because it enabled him to enjoy so much better all the pleasure and happiness around him. For the great swans swam round the newcomer and stroked his neck with their beaks as a welcome. He had been persecuted and despised for his ugliness, and now he heard them say he was the most beautiful of all the birds. Then he rustled his feathers, curved his slender neck, and cried joyfully from the depths of his heart, I never dreamed of such happiness as this while I was an ugly duckling. We talk much in the church about Christ dying for our sin. And rightfully so. Scripture teaches that we are all sinners, that our sin has separated us from our holy God, has made us enemies of God, and that we need a Savior. And Friday, we commemorated that Savior who died for us. But the entirety of the Christian gospel is not just that Jesus died for your sins, but also that he was raised again. That's what we're here to celebrate this morning. And the scriptures teach that Jesus' resurrection has direct implications for all of us. And among them is the idea that because Jesus was raised again by faith, we also who have died will be raised again. We will know a true resurrection. And so as we turn to God's word, I would invite you to stand as I read our sermon text for today from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. God, this is your word, inspired, true, authoritative. And so as your word speaks today, may you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe what you say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What the Apostle Paul does in this simple passage is show us who we truly are because of the resurrection. Like the ugly duckling, staring into that crystal clear water, seeing his reflection for the very first time, we pause today to stare into God's word. To ask him to show us who we truly are. And, and the reflection that we see is life changing. So what do we see when we gaze upon the risen Lord Jesus Christ? What does his resurrection do to us and in us? First, we see this. That the resurrection of Jesus reorients our hearts and minds. Verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above. And then verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
one of the fundamental ideas of the Christian faith, the basic teachings of Christianity, is that you and I are born with broken navigational instruments. Like a plane trying to execute a nighttime landing in the fog. We rely upon the feedback that we get from our instruments. But the problem is that every single instrument is flawed. It's broken. I don't know if we have any pilots in the room, but I think most of us have taken a peek inside the cockpit of an airliner, been overwhelmed by the knobs and gauges and buttons and lights and levers. And that's sort of how many of us feel when it comes to understanding this world in which we find ourselves. But, but the reality is, every single one of those gauges, every light and button and lever and indicator, by nature, gives us bad information. For example, you might be flying at 30 feet, about to collide with the ground, but your altimeter says that you're at 30,000, safe. There's so many voices to sort through. Who do we believe? What is most important? What crisis should I give my attention to today? Where do I invest my time? What do I prioritize in life for my kids? But there are even more fundamental points of confusion today much like those faced by the duckling in the story. Who am I? From where or from whom does my identity come? Whose input do I listen to? What is my value? What's my worth? Who determines that? What's my purpose in life? If you haven't discovered it already, your, your own internal gauges are broken. And the gauges that this world provides, giving feedback on these critical questions, are most certainly malfunctioning. All of the feedback that the duckling received was that he was ugly and worthless and he did not belong. But then he stares into that reflective water and finds out he wasn't even a duckling to begin with. The resurrection of Jesus helps us distinguish that which is really true. It gives us our proper identity. So since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. That The risen Lord Jesus Christ recalibrates our gauges. The resurrection tells us where to look to find our identity and our purpose and our direction and our value and our hope. If we were to continue reading in Colossians, we would see that, that Paul will say, stop looking to the things of this world, to sex and greed and anger and slander and lies. He says, kill those things, put them to death, count them as dead to you, and instead focus your eyes, set your hearts, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is. This reorientation helps us even put things like suffering and trials that we face into their proper place. Remember those words from the story. He now felt glad at having suffered sorrow and trouble. Why? Because it enabled him to enjoy so much better all the pleasure and happiness around him. It sounds an awful lot like what Scripture says. Like the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 
about the sufferings that we encounter in this world. He says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Or Paul's words from Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character produces hope. Or the words of James chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. The resurrection of Jesus reorients our hearts and minds and even puts our trials and our sufferings in this life into proper perspective. Second, the resurrection of Jesus reminds us of what we've received. To really understand this, we have to back up just a little bit and see what Paul has said previously in the verses before our text. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, the previous chapter, starting in verse 6. It says this, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And then jumping forward to chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So all of who God is, Paul says, lives in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. And then verse 12, we see what really sets up our text for today. Chapter 3 flows out of chapter 2, starting in verse 12, where it says this. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So Paul says that by faith you have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him to new life. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So that's the backstory, all that we have received. And then we see in our text today, first, that what, what have we received? First, that we have been buried with Christ in our baptism. We see this in verse 3 of our text. It says, for you died. We have died to sin. We have been buried with Christ. You, you have died to all of the controlling interests of this world. You've died to all of the vain attempts at finding meaning and life outside of the meaning given it by its creator. You've died to the fruitless attempts at establishing an identity of your own. You've died to the hamster wheel of trying to save yourself, trying to do more good than bad, trying to be a good enough person that one day you might stumble your way into heaven. You've died to the opinions of the world. Like all those farmyard voices opining on the ugliness and the worthlessness of the duckling. They were all pointless because, of course, he wasn't a duckling to begin with. Their opinions were worthless because they didn't even know what or who he was. This world is full of voices telling you who or what you should be. Telling you to worship this politician telling you to follow this savior or the next. Every TV news channel has a different savior that they want you to follow, but you have died to that. 
Your hearts and your minds are set on things above. Your life is hidden with Christ, not captive to the kings and controversies of this world. You died, Paul says, and you have been buried with Christ in your baptism. What else have we received? Not only have we been buried, we have been raised. Raised to walk in newness of life. You certainly see this show up in our text in Colossians here. But it was said maybe even more clearly in Romans chapter 6. I'll start reading in verse 3. Romans chapter 6 verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then hear these words, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. By faith, you haven't only been buried with Christ. You haven't only died to the things of this world. We live now having been raised to new life and awaiting day, that final resurrection day, when Christ will return, when our mortal bodies will be raised imperishable. But for today, you have been raised with Christ to live a new life. You've gazed into the water. You've seen the reflection of what God has declared you to be. My life is still pretty ugly at times. I think yours probably is too. We spend a lot of our time believing those voices that we hear. Still buying the lies, still searching for our identity and our value in the things of this world and things that are passing away. But Christ's death and resurrection declares that what you've always assumed about yourself isn't true. While you still struggle with sin, God declares that by faith you are forgiven. God declares that by faith you are his child. God declares that by faith you are a new creation. God declares that by faith you are a citizen of heaven. God declares that by faith you are righteous. For some of us, those can be difficult things to believe. Because we don't feel forgiven. We don't feel like children of God. We don't feel like a new creation. We don't feel like heaven is our real home. We don't feel righteous. We are the duckling. The resurrection invites us to gaze into the water and to see and to believe what God has declared to be true. The death and resurrection of Christ invite us to live in this new life because it is really true. It is reality in spite of our feelings, in spite of our ongoing struggles and sin. It's true because God has said that it's true and he is the author of the story. So what have we received? We have been buried with Christ in our baptism. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. And, and third, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What, what does it mean that, that our life is now hidden with Christ? I think there are two aspects of this word hidden that are helpful for us this morning. First, there's the idea of concealment. 
That aspect of being hidden, to be concealed. To be hidden means that it's not in plain sight. It's not yet fully revealed, fully known. 1 John chapter 3, for example, tells us that we are children of God by faith right now. But, but 1 John says, what we will be has not been made fully clear. It has not yet appeared. We won't fully understand what it means to have life until that final resurrection. But there's another aspect of this word hidden that I think is equally as helpful, and that's the idea of safety. The Old Testament speaks a number of times about God hiding his people, keeping them safe. Psalm 27, for example, says, For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. We can rest secure knowing that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. The resurrection of Jesus reorients our hearts and our minds. It reminds us of what we've received. And and finally, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees what is to come. So what does our text say about that which is to come? What do these verses guarantee for us? First, we see this, that Christ will appear. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears. I love that little reminder that Paul throws in there. Oh, by the way, Christ is your life. Your life comes from Christ. He defines your life. Christ will appear. We can't celebrate Easter without looking forward to Christ appearing again. All of our eternal hope is wrapped up in Christ coming again to bring to completion the work that he has started. The redemptive story is drawn to completion in Revelation chapter 19. There's this epic battle scene when a a man on a white horse with eyes like fire and crowns on his head with the armies of heaven following him defeats the forces of evil of this world and casts the enemy, the deceiver, into the lake of fire. And once evil has been vanquished, We see a vision of the recreative work of Jesus. Jesus will undo the brokenness of this world. And hear these words. The words that sum up what Christ came to accomplish. From Revelation chapter 21. Behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that Christ will appear, and that demands within us a sense of urgency. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your your sin and turn to Christ. He is the only place that salvation and life are truly found. Believe this good news today. The appearing of Christ is... A dreadful thing for those who reject him and his salvation that he purchased on the cross. But it is of greatest 
comfort for those who are trusting in him. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that Christ will appear. But there's even greater news in our text, and that's this. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that you will appear with him in glory. Did you hear that description of glory that I just read from Revelation 21? God dwelling among his people, every tear wiped away. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying, no more pain. All things made new. That's the Easter message. That is true resurrection hope. So gaze into the smooth water and see what Jesus has promised lies before you. What Jesus has said is really true about you. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you believe this? Let's pray. God, we believe, but help our unbelief. We confess that we need our hearts and our minds reoriented, that we're so grateful for all that you've given us, for all that we have received, for all that we've been reminded of this morning. We're so thankful for all that the resurrection guarantees for us, that our Savior will return as conquering king as righteous judge to vanquish evil to undo brokenness to eliminate death and pain to make all things new and we rejoice today that you have promised that when he appears that all who believe all who are trusting in him will appear with him in glory we thank you for these resurrection guarantees Give us faith to believe. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place for our sin, who was raised again, and who will return to make all things new. Amen.